This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. There's a new class of blockbuster drugs. Drugs like Ozempic. They're changing bodies. And all of a sudden, just the weight starts falling off. Fortunes. It just got too expensive. They're just bank breakers. And industries. There was a lot of excitement. There was a lot of skepticism. The impact of these drugs from business to health is just beginning. From the journal... Trillion Dollar Shot. Find it in the journal feed wherever you get your podcasts. In the year leading up to the 2020 election, we're counting down the biggest scandals in American political history. This is number 22, Spiro Agnew. On December 6th, 1973, Spiro Agnew sat at home nursing a martini as his wife Judy packed their moving boxes. On TV, Gerald Ford placed his hand on a Bible and was sworn in as Richard Nixon's new vice president. Then Nixon and Ford smiled and shook hands with what seemed like glee. Agnew leered at the screen, feeling abandoned and betrayed by his former boss. It wasn't long ago that he was the one being sworn in as vice president. But only a day before, Agnew had tendered his resignation. His political ascension had been rapid and surprising, but his fall from grace was even more swift. Now, his downfall would be his greatest legacy. Though Spiro Agnew's life and political career is generally considered a footnote to that of his much more famous boss, Unlike Nixon, Agnew actually was a convicted felon. And to this day, he's the only vice president in history to resign in disgrace. Welcome to Political Scandals, a ParCast original. I'm Richard. And I'm Kate. You can find all episodes of Political Scandals and all other ParCast Originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Political Scandals for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Political Scandals in the search bar. At ParCast, we are grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. Spiro Agnew personified the American immigrant success story. He rose from humble beginnings to become the vice president of the United States. Throughout his life, 
Agnew portrayed himself as a proud, wholesome family man whose values were in step with those of the average American, an example of the fact that if you pulled yourself up by your bootstraps, anything was possible. But this facade belied a darker, more cynical ideology. Agnew was ashamed of his Greek heritage and carefully crafted an all-American image to become accepted by his peers. What Agnew is remembered for most, if he's remembered at all, is his colorful language and clever turn of phrase. But that language was often couched in rhetoric that was racist and divisive. He used his political office to stoke fear and divide the public, and to exploit his power for his personal gain. By the end of his career, he would no longer be a symbol of wholesome American values, but of the corruption and lies that permeated the Nixon White House. Spiro Agnew was born in Baltimore to an American-born mother and Greek immigrant father. After school, the young Agnew took orders at his father's small restaurant, only a few blocks from the state buildings where he would one day serve as governor. As a young man, Agnew seemed positively upstanding. He was popular, gregarious, and excelled in school. While attending the University of Baltimore Law School, he clerked for an attorney named Lester Barrett. Barrett saw promise in Agnew. He was taken with the young man's outspoken yet easygoing manner. In fact, he thought Agnew would make a great politician. At that point, Agnew had little interest in politics. He supported the Democrats, but only to make his father happy. Sensing Agnew's ambivalence, Barrett suggested he switch parties and become a Republican. Baltimore was heavily Democratic, so being a Republican would allow him to make a name for himself in a much less crowded field. Agnew took Barrett's advice, but it would be several years before he understood just how good that advice actually was. After serving in World War II and finishing his law degree, Agnew set up a firm in the suburbs of Baltimore practicing labor law. As a professional, it was a priority for him to shed any traces of his Greek ethnicity. He wanted people to see him as an all-American man. For a time, he even went by the nickname Ted, and he actually vowed no child of his would have a Greek name. Agnew did everything he could to blend into his Baltimore suburb. He became heavily involved in the community, joining the local school's PTA and the Kiwanis Club. After nearly 10 years of this wholesome, if boring, lifestyle, Agnew decided it was time to act on his former mentor's advice and enter politics. For his nascent political career, Agnew chose perhaps the lamest field of all, real estate administration. So he began overseeing the finances and operations of various residential and business properties throughout the city. But this experience soon paid dividends. In 1957, because of his experience as an administrator, he was appointed to the Board of Zoning Appeals, where he was responsible for awarding permits for land use and construction. Boring as it may sound to the average person, Agnew was hooked. It was his first taste of politics, and he was hungry for more. So in 1962, he ran for county executive and won. 
In that position, he oversaw everything from the sheriff's department to the parks department to the tax collector's office. This meant Agnew was in charge of hiring and appointing people to positions within these agencies. Throughout the early 1960s, as a local politician with very little responsibility, Agnew was immensely popular. But his popularity had less to do with his political ideology and everything to do with his image, an image he desperately worked to shape. When a county council meeting was running long, Agnew would take charge and wrap it up. If the meetings weren't heated enough, he could just as easily whip a group of elderly, overweight constituents into a frenzy. Agnew wasn't just a popular politician. He and his wife Judy were exceedingly popular within the community. Agnew's amiable personality and political connectedness earned him the support of wealthy, powerful friends. They loved the barbecues he hosted in his backyard, but what they loved even more was the fact that he could grant them favors. He awarded business contracts to his friends, who then gave Agnew healthy kickbacks, which of course was illegal. But it was a crime that was easily overlooked, and as county executive, Agnew became intimately familiar with the financial benefits waiting for politicians who were willing to bend the law. Perhaps Agnew craved a more distinguished position, or perhaps one where he could make more money under not-so-legal circumstances. Either way, in 1966, he entered the race for governor of Maryland, an election that would prove to be a referendum to the most divisive issue in the United States. The mid-1960s were a time of political and social upheaval across the United States, and the country seemed divided along racial and ideological lines. Race riots were erupting in almost every major city, and the Vietnam War was inspiring equal parts nationalism and protest. It was only in 1964 that the Civil Rights Act federally outlawed segregation, followed swiftly in 1965 by the Voting Rights Act. These acts, however, couldn't undo centuries of institutionalized racism in one fell swoop. Naturally, there was a backlash, not just from racists and zealots, but from many people who felt these acts were a threat to the status quo. Politically, race was the most dangerous and divisive issue of the day. And for Agnew, his relative silence on the most important issue facing the country worked in his favor. Agnew ran against segregationist Democrat George Mahoney. Appearing more racially progressive than Mahoney was not particularly challenging. Agnew simply portrayed Mahoney as a bigot who fought against the notion of equality, wooing many of his opponent's supporters from across the aisle. He never had to explain his own political beliefs or ideology. He simply had to point out that his opponent hated black people. At the end of the 1966 election, Agnew emerged victorious. The first two years of his term as governor passed largely without incident. But in 1968, Agnew's real views on race would make themselves clear, to the horror of many who helped put him in office. In 1968, 
higher education was almost completely segregated in Maryland. Not by law, but by long-standing practice. Historically, black universities received less money from the state and, as a result, had limited resources for building maintenance, athletics, and, most importantly, the curriculum. In late March of that year, students at Bowie State, a historically black university, occupied an administration building in protest. Agnew, who had until now appeared as a moderate on race, quickly ordered the police to shut the protest down and remove the students from the building. Undeterred, the students took the protest to the State House in Annapolis. In response, Agnew had the students arrested and shut down the school temporarily. This reaction illustrated that Agnew was hardly the moderate he claimed to be. When it came to Agnew, someone who had worked hard to shred almost every facet of his Greek heritage, this should have come as no surprise and his reactionary position on race became even more clear after the assassination of Martin Luther King Jr. just one week later. Almost immediately, riots broke out across Baltimore. Governor Agnew gathered black leaders and politicians in his office, ostensibly to address the violence. But unfortunately, he wasn't asking for advice as a political leader in a divided state. He wasn't offering support in a time of horrific tragedy. Instead, he admonished them for not doing more to stop the riots and for supporting the supposedly radical activists in charge. Immediately, half the leaders walked out. One senator remarked to the press, he talked to us like we were children. Agnew's reaction was a profound disappointment to Maryland voters who had considered him the more progressive candidate on the ticket. He received backlash from angry voters and the press, but he also began building support. Support among Americans, not just in Baltimore, who shared his beliefs. As a result of the ideological split in the country, many found the protests not only threatening, but representative of everything they hated and feared. Agnew's demand for law and order immediately caught their attention. And while he may have been growing less popular at home, Agnew's national star began to rise. In late April 1968, he was invited to speak at a Republican women's club where he doubled down on his comments. He called liberal Democratic leaders evil and exploitative. He criticized the so-called liberal elites and eviscerated the supposedly left-wing media. And he wrapped up his speech by saying that America needed strong leadership to restore the pillars of its crumbling foundation. Naturally, this thrust Agnew even further into the spotlight. On the floor of the House of Representatives, Congressman William Clay said that Agnew was attacking, humiliating, and kicking the oppressed. He called Agnew seriously ill and said he was performing mental masturbation. Even though it was disparaging, at least Agnew was being discussed in Washington, D.C. This discussion caught the attention of Pat Buchanan, who worked as an assistant to Richard Nixon. Buchanan understood that Agnew's rhetoric exploited the schism in American society. But it also appealed to many white voters who felt threatened by the revolutionary spirit overtaking the country. Buchanan said of Agnew, 
Here was a Republican with liberal credentials on domestic issues and a law and order temperament, a rare combination in those days. This is exactly why Buchanan began to push the otherwise unknown, unqualified Agnew as a running mate for Nixon on the 1968 presidential ticket. Although Nixon had the support of traditional Republicans, he was looking to mobilize potential voters among the middle and working class. Voters who were traditionally Democrats, but could be swayed by a platform of law and order. And Agnew spoke directly to those voters the ones Nixon needed to mobilize to win in 1968. So, at Pat Buchanan's urging, Nixon was ready to extend the invitation. He wanted Agnew as his vice president. Up next, we'll explore Agnew's explosive impact on the election of 1968 and its effect on his political ascent. Now, back to the story. By 1968, Spiro Agnew had gone from suburban attorney to one of the most famous and divisive politicians in the United States, one who used racial politics to rile up a rapidly expanding base. He leveraged that momentum into a place on Richard Nixon's ticket in the 1968 presidential election. On August 8, 1968, Richard Nixon stepped to the microphone to address the crowd at the Republican National Convention. After a few well-rehearsed jokes and stock lines to fire up the crowd, he turned to introduce his running mate, Spiro Agnew. He was met with confusion and silence. Some could even be heard whispering, Spiro who? After the convention, a reporter asked Nixon if Spiro had been as surprised by his nomination as everyone else was. Nixon replied, I think the best indication of surprise is when a lawyer has no words. Apparently, Agnew had been too shocked to respond after hearing Nixon's offer. Agnew, who could still play to any crowd, told delegates at the convention, I stand here with a deep sense of the improbability of this moment. But Nixon's decision paid off, and their platform of patriotism, new leadership in Vietnam, family values, and law and order proved immensely popular. On the campaign trail, Agnew was brash and outspoken, honing his considerable skill as an orator. He was the loudest voice in the Nixon camp, railing against liberals and cultivating the us-versus-them mentality he'd started to build after the April protests. He emphasized that he and Nixon stood for law and order. Only they could keep America safe. The message propelled them to victory, albeit by a slim margin. Ironically, the two men campaigning on a platform of law and order would both wind up being remembered as criminals. But that reputation wouldn't materialize for a few years. After their victory, Agnew was eager to get to work. But he soon discovered the limitations of his new position. At the time, vice president was more or less a ceremonial position. Agnew, who was used to the power and influence he'd wielded on the campaign trail and as governor, became immediately frustrated. One of his so-called roles was as head of the Office of Intergovernmental Relations. 
acting as a liaison between the president and different mayors and governors. He was also tasked with presiding over the Senate, although his main objective in that role was simply to be present, since he technically wasn't allowed to address the Senate without permission. For Agnew the firebrand, keeping his mouth shut felt like a punishment. Agnew demanded a more prominent role within the Nixon cabinet, but his demand fell on deaf ears. Agnew had been selected for one reason, to win the election. Now, he was no longer necessary. Besides, Nixon and his staff were tending to much more important matters, like planning an exit strategy in Vietnam. They had no interest in giving the inexperienced Agnew more power. Nixon's chief of staff, H.R. Haldeman, actually referred to the vice president as the Agnew problem. But Agnew would get his day. Finally, in the fall of 1969, a year into the presidency, Nixon found the perfect role for him, where he'd not only be out of the way, but be able to reinvigorate their base. Nixon sent Agnew around to college graduations, ribbon cuttings, and Republican conferences across the country. Basically, all the things Nixon was too busy to attend. Though it seemed like a demotion, Agnew was happy to step back into the public eye doing what he did best, railing against liberals and addressing controversial topics more directly than Nixon possibly could. In October 1969, at a fundraising dinner in Jackson, Mississippi, Agnew said liberals had a masochistic compulsion to destroy their country's strength. His favorite target, however, was the media. Specifically, the New York Times and Washington Post, both of which were frequently critical of the administration. Agnew once said journalists were a little group of men who live and work in the geographical and intellectual confines of Washington, D.C. or New York City, but do not represent the views of America. While most of Agnew's speeches were written for him by Pat Buchanan and speechwriter William Sapphire, he sometimes ad-libbed bizarre, made-up words and phrases. He called liberal activists radiclibs, ideological eunuchs, and vultures who sit in trees. During the midterm congressional campaign, Agnew famously called Nixon critics nattering nabobs of negativism. Although the phrase was penned by speechwriter Sapphire, it became Agnew's most significant contribution to the American lexicon. Using that kind of language kept Agnew's name in the papers, but it also reinforced the notion that he wasn't a serious politician. By 1970, Nixon was growing increasingly annoyed with his barnstorming veep. He found Agnew's ham-fisted expressions juvenile and resented how much Agnew craved attention and publicity. Publicity that could have gone to Nixon. Even though Agnew's public remarks were wildly popular with the base, Nixon demanded he tone them down. But Agnew had other plans and a political future to think about. This drove an even greater wedge between the two men, and the feud soon spilled into the press. In 1971, Nixon criticized Agnew for golfing too much on a diplomatic trip to Africa, telling him, you've got to make it appear that the trip's for work, not over there on a goddamn vacation. 
Agnew responded by publicly criticizing Nixon's ping-pong diplomacy with the People's Republic of China. For Nixon, that was the last straw. He started looking for a new running mate for the fast-approaching 1972 election. Nixon actually hatched a secret plan to force Agnew's resignation and then appoint Treasury Secretary John Connolly, a Democrat, to the position. But when Nixon brought his plan to Connolly in 1972, he politely declined. Connolly said he thought the job was useless and he could serve the public better in his current position. After Connolly's snub, Nixon and his advisors decided that replacing Agnew might actually backfire with constituents. So, much to Nixon's dismay, Agnew was kept on. Nixon even gave a few fawning interviews, praising his veep through gritted teeth. But by this time, Spiro Agnew was the least of Nixon's problems. During Nixon's first term, he had set up a group of operatives within the White House to stop the leakage of classified information to the media. Soon enough, the group began engaging in other efforts to gather illegally sourced intelligence, all in an effort to keep Nixon in office. They called themselves the Committee to Re-elect the President, or CREEP. Among their acts of subterfuge was sending opposition groups to Democratic events to cause chaos. They even forged a document called the Canuck Letter that falsely insinuated that Senator Edward Muskie, a candidate for the Democratic nomination, was prejudiced against U.S. citizens of French-Canadian descent. Though the allegations were proven to be untrue, the letter ruined him. But on June 17, 1972, Creep's luck ran out when five men unsuccessfully attempted to break into the DNC headquarters at the Watergate complex. The FBI immediately found a connection between one of the burglars and an ex-CIA officer, E. Howard Hunt, who once worked for Nixon. Hunt was also an associate of Charles Colson, who served as a counselor to the president. While Nixon didn't explicitly order the men to burgle the DNC or any of the other creep efforts, he played a major role in obscuring those acts from the prying media. As the FBI launched an investigation into the Watergate affair, Nixon unsuccessfully tried to shut it down. Naturally, the Watergate scandal dominated the headlines anyway. But despite the negative attention, Nixon and Agnew were re-elected by a landslide in November 1972, winning by the largest majority in American history. While Nixon fretted over Watergate, Agnew was thrilled to be back on the job. He even considered himself a presidential contender for the elections in 1976. And he couldn't ignore the fact that if Nixon were removed from office, then old Spiro would fill his shoes. However, little did Agnew know that back in his home state of Maryland, another investigation was underway, one that focused squarely on Agnew himself. On April 10, 1973, Nixon's Oval Office phone rang. For once, it wasn't about Watergate. The voice on the other end told Nixon that Spiro Agnew had received illegal kickbacks and bribes as a Maryland politician. 
If this information leaked, it would destroy not only Agnew, but the entire Nixon White House. Up next, we'll hear how Agnew's past crimes brought him down even faster than he rose. Now, back to the story. Despite trouncing the Democrats by the widest margin in U.S. history, Nixon was facing a scandal that not only consumed all his time and energy, but threatened his entire political career. So when he received a call about an investigation into Spiro Agnew's financial crimes, he felt oddly relieved that it wasn't related to one of his own crimes. Nixon learned that a small team of federal prosecutors from Maryland had begun investigating political bribery in their home state. Initially, the men were looking into the current county executive Dale Anderson, who would eventually be convicted of extortion. But the more the prosecutors uncovered, the more it seemed that the county executive's bribery scheme was something that Anderson had inherited. Anderson's predecessor, of course, was Spiro Agnew. And it didn't take long for prosecutors to gather dirt on Spiro. Jerome Wolf, a former aide of Agnew's, actually turned over contemporaneous notes, lots of them, regarding Agnew's corruption. Not only was Wolf himself part of the scheme, he'd also kept minutes of Agnew's conversations about the bribes and kickbacks, and he was forced to turn over all of them. They soon learned that not only had Agnew taken bribes and kickbacks as a politician in Maryland, he kept receiving payments for these deals while he was in the White House. The mechanics of Agnew's payoff scheme were as basic as a financial crime could get. As county executive, Agnew gave public contracts to certain construction companies. As a thank you, the contractors would overcharge the state and give Agnew the extra cash. When he became governor, the scheme got a little more sophisticated, but just a little. Agnew simply hired a middleman. He also brought the state roads commissioner on board. Then Agnew got his friend, Bud Hammerman, to collect the cash for him. Agnew kept 50% of the money, and Hammerman and the roads commissioner split the rest. Lester Matz, an executive at a Maryland engineering firm, was one of the men who kept paying Agnew while he was in the White House. Matz had agreed to pay Agnew 5% of the money from the contracts Agnew gave him while he was county executive. Agnew once told Matz he felt the kickbacks could be considered part of his salary as a public servant. As they continued their investigation, the prosecutors uncovered the most shocking news of all. Agnew was not just getting paid off for past contracts. He was continuing the scheme as vice president, promising to hire contractors and businessmen for federal contracts, Matz being one of them. The prosecutors brought this evidence to Attorney General Elliot Richardson, Nixon's attorney general. Naturally, the men were afraid the investigation would be shut down, but in a decision indicative of things to come, Richardson gave them the green light. When these bribery allegations surfaced in early summer of 1973, Agnew tried to spin and deflect. 
He said that he was simply receiving financial support from contractors who had received work orders during his time in office. But the evidence against Agnew was clear-cut, and a trial date was set in Maryland. If he was found guilty, not only could he be impeached, he could also face prison time. Agnew claimed the investigation was a witch hunt from within the Justice Department, the work of liberals and radicals. During a speech made in Los Angeles, Agnew called the allegations deliberately contrived actions of individuals in the prosecutorial system of the United States. He said the investigation was outrageous and malicious. Though Agnew had vociferously defended Nixon against the Watergate charges, Nixon wasn't nearly as generous to his VP. Nixon's team encouraged Agnew to resign, in part because they thought Agnew's resignation would deflect attention away from the Watergate investigation. As summer wore on, Agnew began to feel the heat especially after he'd learned there was evidence that he'd used some of the kickback cash to buy gifts for his mistress. Oddly, this was the most devastating part of the scandal for Agnew. If this got out, the image he'd spent an entire life cultivating would be destroyed. It would shatter his reputation as the wholesome American husband, and the evidence couldn't be dismissed as a smear campaign by his enemies. So Agnew resigned, with the understanding that Nixon would mitigate his sentence if he were indicted. Then, during a trip to California in September of 1973, Agnew had a sudden change of heart. During this sojourn, Agnew spoke at a Republican political event and allegedly spent an evening partying with Frank Sinatra. Perhaps he absorbed some of Sinatra's notoriously aggressive personality. Whatever it was, Agnew's confrontational spirit was recharged. He announced publicly that he would not be resigning, even if he were indicted for his financial crimes. But the Nixon camp had other ideas. General Alexander M. Haig Jr. told Agnew that if he didn't resign, the Justice Department would prosecute him. These were some menacing warnings. Agnew received a note that literally said, go quietly or else. The vague but deliberate threats frightened him. By early October, he drafted a letter of resignation. He also got a team of lawyers to begin working on a plea bargain. On October 10th, 1973, Agnew resigned as vice president of the United States. But his troubles weren't over. He still had to face trial. Luckily, Agnew's legal team had taken the necessary precautions and copped a plea deal. Thanks to Nixon's influence, the only punishment Agnew would face was the end of his political career and a lot of negative publicity. A literal script had been written by Agnew's lawyers and the Justice Department for both his resignation and his plea. If he agreed to resign and accept a felony charge for tax evasion, he wouldn't serve jail time or be charged with political corruption. Even though his sentence was decided before Agnew pleaded nolo contendere that day, Attorney General Richardson took the opportunity to address the court about Agnew's crimes. 
He said that what the evidence illustrated had likely inflicted upon the nation serious and permanent scars with potentially disastrous consequences to vital interests of the United States. And yet, all Agnew was being charged with was failing to report income amounting to $29,500, about $170,000 in today's dollars. Everyone knew he was getting off easy, absurdly easy. Admitting his guilt for this single charge instead of the numerous others he committed meant the court was extremely limited in doling out his sentence. That day, Agnew walked out of court owing $160,000 in back taxes, plus a $10,000 fine. That was it. That was it. Actually, it wasn't. Attorney General Elliot Richardson also declared that Agnew could never be retried on a corruption charge by request of President Nixon. Agnew and Nixon bid one another a polite goodbye, but tension was simmering beneath the surface. In fact, the two would never speak again. Agnew actually refused to answer Nixon's calls for the rest of his life, feeling he had been betrayed and abandoned during his investigation. But Nixon wasn't long for office either. Only a year later, he would resign in disgrace. After his downfall, Agnew and his wife Judy moved to California. There, Agnew worked as an international business consultant. He also wrote a memoir and a novel, both inspired by his experiences in Nixon's White House. In his memoir, he wrote that the only reason he pled guilty was because he thought he would never receive a fair trial. Despite the mountain of evidence against him, he defended himself until September 17, 1996, the day he died. Despite Agnew's meteoric rise and his political career, his transgressions were eclipsed by those of his boss. And while he is largely forgotten, his legacy of race-baiting, attacking the media, and stoking division continues to thrive. Today, the socio-political landscape is even more divided than it was during his tenure, a dubious achievement that can largely be credited to Spiro Agnew. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week with Scandal Number 21. You can find all episodes of Political Scandals and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Political Scandals on Spotify, just open the app, tap Browse, and type Political Scandals in the search bar. We'll see you next time. Political Scandals was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound designed by Trent Williamson, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Travis Clark. This episode of Political Scandals was written by Anna Kira Stinson with writing assistance by Kate Gallagher and stars Kate Leonard and Richard Rossner. <laughs>